Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. Today I'm joined by Andrew Naylor, who is the Regional Chief Executive, APAC ex-China of the World Gold Council. Andrew, welcome. Thank you, Alec. Good to join you. I've got to kick off. Uh, the gold uh, industry is an interesting one. What's your background in terms of finance and what got you thinking about gold and wanting to join the Gold Council? Yeah, it's a very, very interesting question, very interesting aspect. That. So my background is public policy. So I used to look at political trends, geopolitical issues, regulatory issues that would affect businesses. And my career initially focused on financial services more broadly. So I was looking at the financial regulation that was put in place after the global financial crisis, for example, and advising banks and financial institutions on on how to navigate that. And then I started looking at uh, broader trade issues as um, trade agreements were developing in in the region and looking specifically at the the financial services chapters. Then I moved into gold because gold is a a very unique asset. We like to refer to gold as having a dual nature. It's got both a consumer demand component and investment demand component. It's consumed and invested in across the world. We look at the World Gold Council, we look at the entire supply chain. So whilst we we focus on making the investment case for gold and helping uh, people understand the role that, that gold has in institutional and household financial portfolios, we do a lot of work across the, the supply chain. So we have standards, for example, for uh, responsible mining. We've developed standards for the retail gold market and trying to increase best practice in, in that sector. So it's a really, really diverse focus. And that's really what, what drew me to gold, uh, because we're dealing with lots and lots of different issues, lots and lots of different geographies and constituencies, for example. And that, that really makes um, gold as an asset class very, very unique. It's an interesting time for gold. Uh, a lot of the gold bugs now are quite excited by a change in, in Basel III uh, around the risk uh, levels that banks need to hold alongside their gold. Maybe given your background in policy, if you could sort of give a bit more clarification around what's been happening there. I wouldn't be too excited, to be honest. Uh, the Basel III, in particular the NSFR, the net stable funding ratio, isn't good for gold as a whole. There has been a lot of commentary about will this make allocated gold or physically allocated gold more attractive than unallocated gold? And what will the the impact of that be? And we think that that's overplayed a bit. Um, But taking a step back, I mean, Basel III is the accumulation of years and years of work by the international regulators to not just specifically at gold, but balance sheets of banks uh, more broadly. And what they did is they've introduced the uh, the net stable funding ratio. And under the net stable funding ratio, gold or unallocated gold, so that's gold that's held on the, the balance sheet of the bank, that, that attracts an 85% RSF factor. And what, what that means is that for all the unallocated positions, there has to be additional capital posted against those positions. So that means that the funding costs of unallocated gold will go up. Now, there's been a lot of discussion in, in some parts of the financial world about will that mean that the physical gold will be much, much more attractive than unallocated gold? And will it be the end of the unallocated gold market? But absolutely not. I mean, unallocated gold plays a hugely important role 
in the gold market. It's how we finance the, the upstream activities of the refiners, for example, and the producers. It's how jewelers get hold of the physical metal. It's used to efficiently clear transactions in London, which is the world's largest gold OTC market. So whilst, yes, the funding costs of, of unallocated gold will go up, there could be a reduction in liquidity because unallocated gold plays such an important role in the gold market, uh, it, it's it's not going to disappear. So a lot of the commentary about you know the unallocated gold market drying up because of this and everything will be fully allocated that that's just not going to that's just not going to happen. And the other thing to point out as well is unallocated gold. There's still physical metal involved. It's just the way the market works is you can hold or own physical gold in one of two ways. You can hold it on an allocated basis, which means that you, as an investor, have legal title to a specific bar. That bar will have a number, or it could be a fraction of a bar. You can allocate fractions of a bar. But you would know exactly the the bar that you own and that, that you're the beneficial owner of. And the bank is acting as a custodian. So that gold doesn't appear on their balance sheets. It's off balance sheets. They're simply acting as a as a custodian. Unallocated gold, though, there's still physical metal, but you have a general entitlement to gold. So, for example, you could own one kilogram of unallocated gold. The metal will be there, um, but it's just that you don't know exactly which bar you own. You have a general entitlement. Now, that changes the risk profile for sure. So when gold is allocated, you as an investor, you don't have the same kind of credit risk because you own that gold outright. You're not a creditor to the bank. The bank is a service provider to you, and it's storing the gold, custodying the gold on your behalf. When you own unallocated metal, you have a general entitlement to, to the metal. In the event of a, a default, for example, you would become a, a creditor. So the risk profile is different, um, but it, it does. The unallocated market is really the major source of liquidity for the gold market, and that's what makes gold so attractive. Or well, one of the reasons that the gold market is incredibly liquid. I mean, last year, over 183 billion dollars of gold was traded every single day. Um, but you couldn't have those kind of figures uh, if it was all purely allocated gold. I'm curious around then the role of the ETFs. The, you know, gold in, inside ETFs is really popular, um, really popular for not just institutional, but just general retail <laughs> trades. How do you think about the impact of ETF flows? And, and also, you've mentioned there about sort of the risk profile with unallocated gold. I'm assuming that most of these ETFs that uh, people are buying are also unallocated as well. It's a, it's a very interesting question. So there's lots of different terminology we use in the gold market. Now, ETFs, it could be physically backed or it could be a, you know, a, a synthetic ETF that invests, for example, in, uh, in gold swaps. The, the ETFs that we track, so all the data that we, we produce, we track only physically backed ETFs. Now, the gold, uh, what that means is, so the, the, if the AUM is you know, X, X billion of dollars, there's a corresponding amount of physical gold sitting in a vault, usually in London, which is where most of the, the world's gold, investment gold is, is custodied. Um, but the, the ETF is fully physically backed. Now, when it comes to allocated and unallocated, the gold uh, in an ETF is usually allocated to one of the authorized participants. So there is allocated gold to that ETF, but the uh, the end investor, for example, won't you know won't have. It's not the same as buying a a bar outright that's allocated to your name. It's allocated to the to the AP. So they're fully physically backed, but they're not necessarily allocated directly to the end investor. But there is allocated metal that sits in the underlying structure. So again, that does change the 
that does change the the profile, the counterparty and risk profile. But with with ETFs, and you have to check. But as I said, the ETFs that we we track and most of the the largest ETFs and uh, gold ETFs in the world, they, they're physically backed. So there's metal that backs fully backs those those structures. As you think about the demand and the and the recent uh, excitement about gold, you know what's driving a lot of this? Is this institutional interest? Is this consumer trends that we're seeing maybe in China and India? What what do you see as being the sort of the driving uh, force for for gold? That's a very interesting question because it, it's changed a bit. And I referred at the beginning to gold having dual nature. You have both institutional investment demand and you have a consumer demand. And in institutional investors and consumers. They, they behave very, very differently or react very, very differently in times of market uncertainty, for example. And the drivers of their behavior are very, very different. And this is quite unique to gold. There isn't really an asset class like it that has this sort of diverse demand profile. So, for example, investors, they react differently to, to uncertainty. And when there's a lot of economic uncertainty on the horizon, you'll find investment interest increases in gold. And that's what happened last year. So we, you know, last year was a record year for ETFs, for example, which are a good benchmark, if you like, for investment interest in gold. And it was a record year. We saw you know, record gold prices, for example, and that was primarily driven by the amount of, of economic uncertainty that was on the horizon due to, obviously, due to COVID. We didn't know what the and we still don't know really what the shape of the economic recovery is going to be. It's timing. Will it be a V-shape, K-shape, W-shape? We just we don't really know yet. And we're still sort of finding our feet. But last year was certainly a, you know, a record year for investment interest in gold. But conversely, um, consumer demand tapered off. And when you have uh, uncertainty coupled with higher gold prices, that's when you tend to see uh, consumer demand uh, taper off. Also, last year was, was quite unique because we had a lot of lockdowns which were physically preventing consumers from, from buying gold. But this year, what we're starting to see is we're starting to see the green shoots of, uh, of economic recovery in, in, in major markets such as China, for example, and now actually in, in the US, which is a big consumption market as well. We're starting to see consumer demand pick up again as consumers regain confidence uh, as the lockdowns have, have dissipated, as the gold prices has softened this year, you, you, you see that sort of renewed uh, consumer interest. So gold has this, you know, has this dual nature, which means that it, it behaves very, very differently to, to other asset classes. The, the other elements of demand that I, I should mention, one is technology, um, and that's driven by expansion as well. So consumer demand and technology demand to some extent, central bank demand is driven by expansion, economic expansion. So if you look at over the last 10 years, on average, about 7, 7% of, of demand was, was technology. It's used in, uh, in all sorts of components, especially high-end electronics, for example. It's used in the space industry. It's, it's um, well known for its use in, in medical appliances. That's partly because of its unique, uh, unique properties. And so whenever you have something that is safety critical, like in medicine, like in very high-end technology, uh, there's a pre preference to use gold because um, uh, lack of corrosive attributes, for example. And it has, it has unique, uh, other unique properties as well that's used in, in, uh, in the medical sector, including in uh, some 
medical testing services, for example. So that, that accounts for about 7%. And when the economy is doing well, it goes without saying, consumers are consuming more, buying more goods. Gold as a component gets uh, consumed in higher amounts. Um, about a third of demand, uh, 34% of demand is jewellery demand. And the big markets for jewellery are here in Asia, in uh, China and India in particular, but also Vietnam is a, is a, is a very large market for, for jewellery here in Southeast Asia. And but a lot of the demand for jewelry is actually is financially motivated. You know, jewelry, gold jewelry is still valued in many markets, not just as a as a decorative item, which is perhaps how we would view jewelry in in, in Western markets. But jewelry is it's a source of investment. It's a it's a savings vehicle as well as a decorative item. So the motivations for for purchasing are. You know, are quite different, but I, but it's it's obviously consumer led, and you know, as I said, jewelry demand and tech demand, which together account for about forty percent of, of annual demand for gold, that that's driven by expansion. I mentioned investment, which is about forty percent of, of annual demand, that's driven by uncertainty, and then finally, central bank demand, which accounts for about seventeen percent of demand. If you look at the the last ten year uh, average annual annual demand figures. Uh, 17% is central bank demand, and that's driven by both expansion and uncertainty. In times of, of, of economic uh, of economic growth and expansionary environments, uh, central banks have the capacity to uh, to add to their reserves rather than have to deploy them. But also in times of uncertainty, they behave like a bit more like institutional investors as well. So because we have this very very unique demand profile sectorally. For gold, it means that gold behaves very, very differently to other asset classes because there isn't really another asset class that has that kind of diversity. Um, the final point on demand I would make as well is that demand for gold is global. It's not subject to one particular market, for example. Yes, the most demand for gold is is driven from from Asia, but there's huge amounts of institutional investment demand, for example, in North America and Europe. So there, it isn't gold isn't subject to the the economic performance of one particular geography. There are lots and lots of geographies involved in the market from a demand perspective. Um, and again, that adds to gold's uniqueness as an asset class. So that sort of geographical diversity and sectoral diversity for demand means that gold is, is unique and it behaves very, very differently to, to other financial assets. And because it behaves differently, it's also an effective diversifier, which is what a lot of institutional investors want and need. They need a, di- a portfolio diversifier, and gold is is a unique diversifier precisely because it has this unique sectoral and geographical demand profile. I've got to drill into valuation. You mentioned it at one point uh, during your conversation there, and for a lot of investors, there's always a challenge about how to value gold because it doesn't provide cash flows. Uh, and so, how would you then go about explaining to institutional investors, what the approach is. You mentioned also about the geopolitical risk that picks up, inflation risk that picks up, and that has a benefit for gold. But how can you potentially formalize that process for, for an institutional investor? There are four things that you that you would need to look at. And and we've developed a tool, which I'll go on to in a minute. Um, it's called Quorum, a gold valuation framework, which synthesizes all of this and allows institutional investors or, or anybody that's interested, really, uh, in uh, in the value of gold to model their own assumptions about the global economy and the impact that that will have on on gold's value. But the four major drivers of gold's value and demand: one, I've mentioned its economic expansion, 
So periods of growth, they're very supportive for jewellery, tech, and long-term savings, for example. Second factor is risk, risk and uncertainty. So when you have market downturns, that often boosts investment demand for gold uh, as a safe haven, for example. And then you look, you need to look at, and that, that's sort of a, that's what we would refer to as strategic factors. But then there are also tactical elements as well, which drive interest in gold. The first of which is opportunity cost. That's obviously linked very much with, with interest rates. So when interest rates are higher, there's more sort of more of an opportunity cost, for example. So you, you, you tend to have slightly less interest in gold. But basically opportunity cost, it's the price of of competing assets, bonds or interest rates, currencies, other assets, and so on. And that influences um, investor attitudes towards gold. And then the final tactical factor is momentum. And we see quite a lot of that, this in TF space, for example, that momentum is one of the drivers of, of demand. It's not the only one. But when the price goes up, that can ignite further interest in gold, or when the price goes down, that can dampen uh, interest in gold. And that's really uh, to do with tactical positioning of, of, uh, of traders that are investing in, in gold. So those are the four major factors, if you like. And each of those are, you know, are, are affected by other factors. So economic expansion, obviously, our view on China's performance in the future, or India's performance, or the US economic performance is going to have an impact there. Opportunity cost will be linked to how we see the US dollar performing in the future or global interest rates and so on. And so to bring all of that together, we've developed a tool that I mentioned that's on our website, goldhub.com. Uh, it's called Quorum, and it's free to use. And you can go in there and model your own or put in your own assumptions about the future of the of the macroeconomic environment and play around with it and come out with a you know, with, with, uh, see how that would impact the gold's value in the future, and that this is this is really a tool to to help educate. And the, the model is it, it's been developed for us by third party economists, uh, Oxford Economics, and it allows you really to sort of model your own assumptions about the, the global macroeconomic environment and see how that might affect the value of gold. And that, that's that you know, as I said, that's sort of free to use, fully accessible. The model is online and can be fully interrogated. And there are lots of different factors that you can model into the into the framework or input into the framework to, to see how it would affect um, gold's value. But as I said, the, the, the four main drivers, economic expansion, risk and uncertainty, opportunity cost and uh, momentum. One area you didn't talk about there, and I think most people would be dying to ask you the question, is the role of crypto assets? Uh, and you know, what's the opportunity of crypto and how does potentially crypto assets play a role in the price of gold? Oh, it's very interesting because it, it, there's, there's been quite a lot of commentary about um, you know, crypto, the new gold. But cryptocurrencies, they, they have a role to play, but they're, they're fundamentally a you know, very, very different asset. The sources of demand are very, very different. Don't, you know, as I mentioned, the uniqueness of gold is because of its mainly because of its sectoral diversity of demand. So you know, it goes without saying you don't have jewelry demand, for example, that, that plays a role. Central banks aren't allocating to crypto as a reserve asset. So the ownership and demand for crypto is much more concentrated, if you like, than, than gold. Also supply is as well. So gold supply is geographically very, very diverse, but also you get you, recycling plays a fundamentally important role in in, uh, in the supply of gold as well. So it, it's not just about the diversity of demand, it's also about the diversity of supply. So cryptos is more uh, concentrated supply, for example. 
And we've seen the volatility that, that cryptos can bring. This isn't to say that you know, they, they, they don't play a role, but they have a very, very different risk profile. And we would argue, I mean, crypto is certainly not, not a safe haven asset. There's also a lot of uncertainty at the moment about the regulatory environment for crypto. The, the regulatory environment for gold is pretty stable. We've mentioned the NSFR, but that's not going to certainly not going to kill the market. But the, the regulatory environment for the cryptocurrencies, we, we really don't know at this stage how that's going to evolve with time. So there's, there's quite a lot of uncertainty. And we would argue, you know, if you wanted to invest in crypto, you need to obviously look at the, the risk of that. And I would argue that the risk exposure would be would be higher. So if you've got a higher risk exposure, then maybe you want to think about actually diversifying and investing in gold as well to offset some of that that risk through crypto investment. So it's it's a, you know it's an interesting conversation. It's an evolving uh, conversation. I mean, it, obviously there's a lot of interest in crypto. It's new or fairly new. There was significant interest last year, for example. It is a very, very different asset. So I don't see crypto replacing or displacing gold. Could have a an important role in portfolios in the future, but given the risk associated with it, you would then need to start looking at gold as well to try and offset some of that risk. I'm curious as to whether you've looked at the relationship between silver and gold. Um, it's always seen as a complementary sort of asset. I'm just curious if you've done any research there. We haven't, no. Obviously, there are different drivers of demand. So, you know, silver is, is more of an industrial asset. So, you know, it's, you know, similar arguments that I made about crypto, I mean, it, gold is a fundamentally different asset. The drivers of, of silver demand are a bit more industry-led. You know, it, it's used more in, in technology and industrial processes, for example. But so we don't, but we don't look at um, silver specifically. Okay. Yeah, I guess we assume it's similar to something like copper. But anyway, let's let's keep moving. One of the other things that I think is really critical as as uh, institutional investors think about the the gold market and gold specifically is really the whole process from mine to market, and particularly the UN Sustainable Development Goals and ESG considerations. So I'd be really keen to get a feel for what that process looks like today and how that process may have changed as we move from mine to market, and and how gold's really trying to help address some of the ESG considerations that the asset owners have. As an extractive asset, there are obviously ESG considerations that come into into the mix, you know, which are very, very, you know, they're very, very important to to understand and to address. And um, we've looked at this in a number of ways. So there's a lot of focus on on climate change. That's not the only ESG issue, but specifically on climate change, we've done a lot of work to quantify the um, emissions of the of the sector. Um, and we've done that and then looked at it and compared it to to other extractives. And that data is fully available, but it you know gold is you know, it's positioned quite favorably when you when you compare the emissions of the gold sector to to other extractives assets. We've also highlighted what the producers are doing to reduce their emissions. So there's a big push for reduction, there's pathways to to net zero, for example, through and that's facilitated through the electric electrification of, of mines using renewable sources of energy, process efficiencies and automation and so on is is, is contributing to that as, as well. And then just finally on the on the climate change issue, we've also looked at, at the role of gold in climate-friendly technologies. And there's a lot of research that's been done at the moment to, to look at gold in particular in nanoparticulate form. 
and its role in environmentally friendly technology solutions. So in, in for example, in, in fuel cell technology and carbon capture and storage and so on, there's some quite exciting research going on about how gold can be used and is essential for these new and environmentally friendly technologies. But this is one, you know, climate change is an important issue, but it, it's, it, it gets a lot of attention. But there's, you know, there's broader, as I mentioned, there's broader ESG considerations as well. And we've done a, a number of things. So our, our members have developed the responsible gold mining principles. And these principles bring together all of the different standards that already exist uh, concerning, you know, broad range of ESG uh, considerations into a single framework. And the, the point of doing that was, one, to make it easier for producers to report their, their compliance, but secondly, and actually more importantly, to make it easier for investors to understand the compliance of producers instead of having to look at lots of different standards. We brought it all together into one uh, single framework, which uh, increases transparency and these were launched last year, and they're accompanied by a, an assurance framework. So they're phased in over two years, but eventually there will be an independent assurance framework that, that accompanies those responsible gold mining principles. Secondly, we've, we've also looked at gold's contribution to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and we, we released a report last year on this, which just looks at the a lot of the work that the producers are doing, for example, to invest in communities, invest in infrastructure, for example, in environmental restitution at the, the end of the life cycle of a mine. And there's lots and lots of good work that's been done. So we've, we're highlighting that through a report that we released last year, which looks at gold's contribution to the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals. There, there are other issues as well when it comes to sustainability and integrity especially when we look at the retail market, for example. And so we've also recently launched the Retail Gold Investment Principles. And the, the idea behind those was, as a retail product, gold is often unregulated, sold through unregulated channels. And whilst a lot of providers are very, very responsible and adhere to best practice, some don't. And, and a lot of our research has, has shown that trust is a, is a barrier to future investment. So to try and address those issues and increase best practice in the sector. We, we launched the Retail Gold Investment Principles last year, and we're, we're rolling those out uh, in different markets. We, we've rolled them out in Germany and India to, to start with, which are two very important consumer markets. And this year, we're looking at uh, in Singapore. Towards the end of the year, we're going to start looking at Australia, we're looking at the US as well. And this is to, to help increase trust in the, in the retail market and give consumers greater confidence in, in the, the gold that they're buying and the channel through which they're buying it. So there's a broad range of ESG issues that we're, that we're looking at. Just to clarify, does that mean that then a person who bought gold through a retail channel could almost see where the gold has come from, specifically which mine? No, not through the retail gold investment principles, but th there is a lot, there are, there are new technologies out there that are being looked at and evaluated you know, that, that are increasing that, that sort of traceability, if you like. What we do know, though, is, I mean, if you, there, there are already some very, very stringent standards out there regarding responsible sourcing. So the refiners, for example, through the, you know, the good delivery list, they're adhering to very high levels of responsible sourcing. So you know that if you're buying a, a certain bar that's produced by a certain refiner, you can be confident that the, the material has been responsibly sourced. Now, at the moment, though, you don't have that visibility and traceability over the source of the gold you know, to, to a specific mine. 
you know, I would caution as well. We're doing a lot of work to improve integrity and improve the visibility of the supply chain. But, but don't forget, there's a lot of recycling that goes on. So jewellery, for example, you know, that's not to say it's not being responsibly sourced. If it's being refined by you know, a good delivery refiner, you can have confidence that it has been responsibly sourced. But, but because, you know, when you buy a gold bar, it's not going to have come unless it's a you know a fresh bar from you know from Dore, the first ever bar. It's highly unlikely that the gold will ever have come from a single mine source. You know, the 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 be remelts that happen, jewelry's recycled, bars are recycled. The institution investors they tend to allocate to very large bars, 400 ounce bars, but in the retail market it's it's kilo bars, and then you would have you know, the, the, the large bars would go back to the refiner, would be remelted, re-refined into a kilo bar, for example. So uh, it, it's unlikely you would ever have, you know, you'd have a bar that's come from a single source. There's always going to be a very, very significant proportion of, of bars out there that will have come from multiple sources. So what's what's important, though, is that we can guarantee that all of those sources have been responsible. And so a lot of work at the moment is being done to look at security features, for example, on bars, but then also to look at tracking of material as it flows through the supply chain. Because you have all these multiple sources in a big secondary market and lots of recycling, it's unlikely you would have a you know, you'd have a bar from a single source. What's important is though that you can be confident that the origin of the material that that that, that is in the bar uh, has has come from responsible sources in plural. All right, Andrew, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today. No, thank you very much, Alex. It was great to chat. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.